Hello and welcome to Mashmouth, a podcast covering every single episode of the hit 1970s sitcom, Mash. I'm Ethan. And I'm Vanessa. Vanessa, today's episode involves uh, the gang trying to set this world record. So I wanted to ask you if you have any familiarity with any cool world records or like any stories about those Guinness Book of World Records book that they always had at like school book fairs that we had when we were like (laughs) kids. I don't know if they still do that, but that's a very core memory for me in my childhood. (laughs) Yes. So when I was in elementary school in about third or fourth grade, those those Guinness Book of World Records. I know it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Those Guinness World Record books were uh, such a hot commodity. The, mm-hmm. There was always one copy in the classroom, and then everybody always wanted to get the copies <laughs> at the Scholastic Book Fair. So <laughs> um, I have always been very fascinated with water and being submerged in water and holding mm-hmm. my breath and whatnot. So even though this isn't super interesting or unique, I think that my favorite Guinness World Record is the longest time holding your breath underwater. Um, so I did us the solid of looking it up. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> so as of 2023, <laughs> the longest someone has held their breath was 24 minutes and 37 seconds. That is the dream. That's like Aquaman right there. I yes. want that superpower. I love being submerged in water. I love holding my breath. It's such an odd Ooh. thing, I know. So that was always my most, like, I always loved to see it, you know? And I also looked it up. So the category is technically called the longest time breath held voluntarily. And right, that right. is so <laughs> scary to me that it was like voluntarily. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but also slightly terrifying. Um, Yeah. So that was, that was quite interesting when I looked it up. Yes, um, voluntarily is the operative word there. It's very important. <laughs> um, that is cool, though. I, I do like uh, being in like pools and whatnot, and I've never been good at holding my breath. So I do sympathize with your, your dream of <laughs> holding it longer and longer. Um, for me, when we decided on this opening topic, I had to like go through a lot of stuff that I thought was just really, really gross. Like A lot of them were like longest toenail. And, like, Ugh. other gross stuff like that. I was Ugh. like, no, that's not the fun world record at all. And uh, I found one that I thought was really fun on BoredPanda.com. So I'm not sure how, <laughs> like, accurate this is. But apparently the record for the longest stand-up comedy is 40 hours and 8 minutes by this guy oh named David goodness. Scott. And that is a, oh such a specific record. And again, 40 hours, eight minutes. It's a long, long time. But it's the kind of thing where you're like, I could beat that. Like, if, <laughs> if I had to, if I had to, I absolutely could. That's not holding your breath underwater. Like, you, you're not in any danger. You just got to, like, write a few more jokes, you know? You got to, like, <laughs> really just have the, the core stamina to tell jokes for 40 hours. That's the thing. I would say, oh, yeah, I could beat that easily. But I also fall asleep as soon as I get tired. (laughs) So there is no opportunity for me to stay up for 40 hours. That is also true. But again, if I was pressed, I'd be like, yes, I I absolutely could. If you gave me the the, uh, prep time, I would absolutely try. Because it doesn't have to be (laughs) good stand-up. It just has to be (laughs) stand-up. Yeah, I think um, of the two, holding your breath versus just really long stand-up, I would have to try the really long stand-up because it yeah. just seems like it would be a little bit easier. And if you fail, there's like no repercussions. If you fail at holding your breath for a <laughs> long time, things might get dangerous. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so going from that, let's actually get into this episode. This episode was called Dear Peggy. BJ writes a letter home to his wife while there's a lull in the action. The letter includes the 4077 breaking a world record, a big mean chaplain coming to visit, and Klinger's multiple escape attempts. Vanessa, what did you think about this episode? This was a cute episode. I really liked this one. Um, It definitely wasn't an all-time favorite of mine, I don't think. But I think that this one had some good parts to it. 
I liked that Father Mulcahy was featured very prominently in this episode, which was a little bit weird, I thought, because this was supposed to be an episode kind of following BJ, but it yes. really focused on Father Mulcahy and things that he was going through at the time. So that that was a little interesting, but I liked it nonetheless. Yes, this was very much a Father Mulcahy episode, and it is weird that this is like, build as a BJ episode because he's not even really involved in no, the Follow storyline to like relay this. And I feel like the better title would have been like something like Dear God. But maybe they weren't allowed to do that, you know? Um <laughs> maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was curious as to why the writers chose to follow Father Mulcahy so prominently in this storyline while making it a BJ type of episode. And I feel like maybe the same thing could have been achieved if Father Mulcahy was like writing a letter to someone or someone in his life. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I mean, I think if I'm not mistaken, we do get an episode that's kind of like that um, later on. But I don't know. It it was it almost threw me off a little bit, but that's not to say that I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, I'm I'm a little disappointed that this isn't more of a BJ episode. I was like very excited uh, once they kind of introduced him writing the letter and kind of like who Peggy was because I wasn't familiar with that being the name of his wife. Um, I was so happy to be like, okay, this is going to be a BJ episode. We're going to get more of his perspective on things like we did with a very recent episode with Colonel Potter. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that. And again, not that this episode is bad for it, it's just odd. It's like presented as one thing, but the actual contents of it are are pretty much separate. Um, even if it would have made more sense if this was a dear dad, because those are like very loose things that happen around Hawkeye and you're not really expecting like character specific development, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And in this episode, I was so actually excited because we kind of got a lull in the fighting episode and also a letter home episode. And it's always fun to get into the heads of the characters other than Hawkeye because, you know, Hawkeye is very much the main character. So it's Mm -hmm. like a welcome kind of treat for us to get into the heads of other characters. And we really didn't, not all that much, but I will say the scenes that BJ is narrating are really good and I really enjoyed them even though the episode wasn't totally focused on him what we got from him was very enjoyable for me yeah I agree because the first thing that he kind of narrates and talks about is this story of Frank uh kind of immediately giving up on a patient just as soon as there's any like friction he's just like oh he's dead forget it there's no pulse forget it and BJ uh, this is like the one real big kind of character moment for him in the episode. It comes very early, jumps in and does his absolute best to resuscitate this guy. And I love that. I love that BJ is like a really good doctor. I like that he's, uh, they say he's like fresh out of medical school. So he's a little more willing to like put stuff on the line and like not follow like rules directly because he is like fresh out of it. Um, I, I really like this whole section, and I know you did too. Yeah, definitely. First of all, I thought that the camera, the the direction, the direction, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> the direction in this episode was really top-notch because um, we got really great scenes uh, throughout this whole episode, like really good camera shots. Mm-hmm. And when BJ kind of jumps in and starts to try to revive this patient, there's this really intense scene and this really intense camera shot of him pushing on his chest. And it, it was so it was so good. Um, and it also, like you said, this, this character development for BJ was really great to see, too, because I feel like BJ was just so intense in this scene. Yeah. Um, in a way that I feel Hawkeye would have also jumped in and tried to save this patient. Right. He was not going to let mm-hmm. <laughs> he would not have let Frank just kind of throw this patient out once his heart stopped. But I feel the intensity with which BJ dove in there and was, for all intents and purposes, very dramatic, like Frank said. Um, yeah, very action hero. Yeah. And and I don't think that that was necessarily a bad thing, but it was just more dramatic than maybe Hawkeye would have been. And I like that intensity from him because he's new and because he's young. And I think that still... 
(laughs) (laughs) I think the writers continuing to showcase that is really cool because BJ is still relatively new. And I, I don't know. I like that they're still drawing those comparisons between who BJ is and who Hawkeye is. Yeah, he's got something to prove, you know. Um, I'm going to give Frank a little bit of credit here, actually, is that, you know, Frank puts up a little bit of like a fuss about it, but he does immediately help BJ like with the anesthesia and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's like Frank, you know, it's not the best doctor in the world and he will like fight you a little bit, but he's not going to like <laughs> be like, no, I'm not going to help you. I declared this guy dead. Um, He, he did like do his job. And I feel like at this point in the show, we got to give him just a little bit of credit where it's due. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) But I also have, we also have to note that Frank was very upset with BJ for quote unquote going over his head. He didn't like the way that he went about saving the patient. Okay, Frank, sure. What's more important, your rank or saving a person's life? But, you know, the, we're just preaching to the choir here. Everyone knows that we do not like Frank Burns. And, and he, I will give him as little credit as possible. And to take back some of the credit that I just gave, he was very snarky about it because Frank was like, ha ha ha, I told you. Like, when it wasn't working, he was like, ah, see, I was mm-hmm. right. And it was just like, <laughs> come on, buddy. Come on. I know. It's so terrible. Um, But... After that scene, too, I don't know if you picked up on this, but um, there was a little bit of continuity here with BJ's character because he was writing this letter to Peg, his wife, and he was saying how he was worried about this patient. So he he couldn't sleep and he stayed up all night with him. And that had happened before. And it happened one night when BJ was new to the outfit, still like really new and the his patient just wasn't getting better and he couldn't sleep so he stayed up all night so i really liked how the writers kind of threw that in there with a continuity of character for bj as well yeah i like that too i did not pick up on that uh like you did but you bring that up i'm like all right they they are uh mapping it all out you know they they do take this into consideration i really do appreciate that and again i think that's a thing of him being so new and so like fresh to things that he is so worried about everyone he operates on. Like, he he kind of needs them all to be safe. Where if, you know, you're there for a longer period of time, you're less inclined to be that worried about everyone. Mm-hmm, definitely. And then also in this scene, we get the first uh, kind of discussion about really the main portion of this episode that father follows Father Mulcahy. Um So Father Mulcahy is talking to BJ and he is quite worried because this high ranking chaplain, this colonel chaplain kind of guy is coming to kind of evaluate Father Mulcahy's work at the 4077. And Father Mulcahy is quite uh, worried about it. So I I thought that this scene was interesting because of something that Father Mulcahy says. But what did you think about this little first introduction? This was so, like, odd and interesting to me because you don't really think about Solomon Mulcahy having to really answer to someone. He's kind mm-hmm. of outside of the, the typical, like, military unit kind of thing. He's, you know, the religious man. Um, It's a very separate discipline. And this, him being, like, worried about a superior and, like, calling the superior, like, uh, one of the most famously scary chaplains of all time and like whatever he says specifically he calls him attila the hun of chaplains which is such an oxymoron (laughs) that is so good the attila the hun of chaplains which is quite the mental image Uh, i feel like you do not want to be the attila the hun of chaplains i feel like you're not doing your job properly at that point but who am i to judge Um, I would think so, but again, who am I to judge? (laughs) I am certainly no chaplain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought this storyline was really interesting, and I liked getting more into uh, Father Mokehi, even though it it is kind of at odds with, like, the title of the episode. Yeah, one thing that I had mentioned before that this scene was interesting to me was because (laughs) BJ says to Father Mokehi that Hawkeye has mentioned that Father Mulcahy is the best chaplain that there ever was. And Father Mulcahy is very touched by this. And he goes, oh, Hawkeye, that crazy agnostic. And I kind of 
thought that it was so cute because I feel like Hawkeye would kind of maybe be agnostic, right? Um, and I like the idea that Father Mulcahy and Hawkeye have discussed religion Ooh. at points in time. They've talked shop, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And I, I feel like it would also track with Hawkeye to kind of go to the source if he was questioning any type of religiosity that he held or religious beliefs that he held um, to go directly to Father Mulcahy to kind of discuss it because he's so smart that he would go yeah. directly to, to the person who knows best. Um, yeah. And so that was that was just like an interesting little funny tidbit that they kind of threw in there. I'm, of course, probably reading a little bit into it, but I thought it was no. interesting that they put it in there. I think that you're pretty on the money. One thing that I always like about this show is like the religious kind of things in it. Like I like that from like, he is very accepting of everyone and is just generally a really good dude. Because mm -hmm. in this uh, show, which is largely like a satire on like war in the military, it would have been so easy to make Father Mulcahy like kind of like, you know, one of those religious caricatures who's just like not a good dude. And I, I genuinely appreciate they like took the time to make him like a fully well-rounded accepting character. You know what I mean? And I think him being so accepting of Hawkeye being agnostic, I just think adds to that. And like there's a bit later on in the episode where they talk about like, uh, Passover or something coming up and you know it's just a very like you know everybody's cool and I, I appreciate the everybody's cool aspect of Father Mulcahy's character I think that it is so sweet also that if Hawkeye was potentially like questioning religious beliefs that he had um, that Father Mulcahy would be like oh, okay that's okay like obviously yeah. he was going to do what he does best and like try to convince him and, and whatnot but I think that the fact that he's able to kind of like meet people where they are, I, I don't know. It just I think like that's the best. Yeah, it just it really contributes to my love for this character because he is just like such a good person. Yeah, he's who like you want to talk to about this kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. And then right after this scene too, this is one of this is another scene that I noted to be kind of interesting about BJ to kind of switching gears here, but BJ again, continues his letter to his wife, Peg, and he mentions to Hawkeye that it was Peg's first overseas package to him, and yeah. he had, like, a cake that she sent him, and the chocolate that she sent him melted on his, like, underwear or whatever it was, <laughs> and it was just, it was really cute, and I really liked how the writers are still kind of taking the time to settle BJ in. I think that that just shows how much care that they put into this show and how much they cared about the show and the characters and the audience liking the characters too. They're mm -hmm. just not shying away from the fact that he hasn't been here for that long. And I don't know, I, I, I've definitely mentioned this in previous episodes that I really appreciate that. But again, to see it after... All of this time, you know, 11 episodes in, definitely 11 weeks into the show, if it was airing normally, that it's still it's still something great that I think that they took the time to do. I absolutely agree. And I really liked in this continuation of the letter, uh, this might not be the specific scene, but in this letter, he constantly reiterates how much he loves his wife and just mm -hmm. like writes that on every page. And to go back to like people watching this, um, in, in real time, if you're a big fan of MASH, you know that, like, infidelity is a big recurring subject in <laughs> these characters uh, previously to Colonel Potter and BJ's introduction. So I, I really like that they continue to hammer home that he is new and unlike Trapper, unlike uh, Henry, unlike Frank, they are committed men. <laughs> They really enjoy their spouses just as individuals. And uh, it's nice to see. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty refreshing, I would say. So as I mentioned, BJ is continuing to write the letter to his wife. And this is where our discussion of the world records comes in. Right. Uh, we did not just mention that in a vacuum because <laughs> <laughs> BJ recounts to Peg that Hawkeye read that uh, there was a college campus that 
packed 15 people into a Volkswagen or something like that. And that was like the world record for the most amount of people in a vehicle or something crazy like that. And so, of course, Hawkeye is like, yeah, we're going to beat the world record. So they're trying to like shove (laughs) 10 tons of people into this Jeep. And it's just it's the comedy that you would expect from MASH. This is such a this yes. is such a MASH-ism. <laughs> this is perfect 70s sitcom slapstick <laughs> comedy. This is so like cute and funny and absurd. And I felt really captured the feeling of uh the like fun part of world records that I really enjoy. The idea mm-hmm. that you can like do them yourself. That's what I was trying to say with the uh stand-up comedy of like, hey. Yeah. Anybody can accomplish this. It really doesn't take a lot to <laughs> shove a lot of people into a Jeep. Um, and I, I really liked Hawkeye slowly convincing Margaret to like join yes. in. I thought that was so <laughs> funny. And I love that she was wearing like pigtails in this scene. I was like, ooh, that's a that's a spicy hairstyle for her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's so funny because Margaret had just a big smile on her face and it didn't take like a lot of convincing. As soon as yeah. Frank walked away, she she was kind of like into it. And it was it was funny, probably coincidental, but pretty funny to me that she was wearing pigtails. Which are very childlike. So right, it's just exactly. like she's having fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like she was kind of like allowing herself to have fun. I don't know. Th- this scene was just so cute, so wholesome. And they were they all shoved in and they all took this picture. And it was so it was just so cute. And the picture they took, uh, especially like the frame that they had when it was actually being taken, I felt was like a perfect poster. Like you could absolutely take that image, maybe like paint it out a little bit, like make an Animal House style like <laughs> poster of it and be like, MASH, Thursdays at eight, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, I feel definitely. like that's a great representation of the series, especially with like everybody like smiling and laughing. It was a great time. <laughs> I loved it. Unfortunately, though, the fun kind of comes to an end after this because this is when the dreaded Colonel Chap- Chapman. I have to figure out what his name is. <laughs> hang on, hang on. I I can't Ned I Beatty can't keep Mash. going with this. Ugh, I just love BJ also so much. He's like truly. I love Hawkeye, but I also like just love BJ so much. I don't know. There's just like something about him that I just love and i'm so happy that hollister that's what it is i'm just so happy that he is that he's in the show now and we get to talk about him i mean i like i love trapper too but i don't know bj is just truly one of my favorite characters like in shows in general i mean i've only had 11 episodes with him but i i like that he's just a sweet kind guy who's like willing to uh you know really fight for people's well-being that's just like nice to see yeah i think that like and again this is this is my first time truly analyzing the episodes and the differences between trapper and bj and stuff like that but it's just so fun to me to see those differences and how like kid-like bj is you know he he is young and he is so so childlike i'm pretty sure he's only supposed to be like our like age 28 he's yeah no, he's a bit older than us let's give us a little bit of credit here but he's like 28 i think um which I, is very I young i feel like i remember them saying he was 26 obviously mike <sighs> farrell was not 26 <laughs> yeah that's uh, <laughs> it's very obvious but i mean also, medical school is rough so that's true i probably look like i'm 32 <laughs> so <laughs> um I love how young and jovial BJ yeah. is and when he goes through some stuff in the later later episodes and the later seasons I think that it's just uh it's just so good. It's really It's good. a good counterpoint because he's not snarky in the way that like Trapper really was. Like he's just yeah. a genuine optimistic guy who like loves people. And like Trapper was again like Hawkeye this very like cynical dude has this, you know, satirical outlook on things. And it's like yeah. a good counterbalance. Something that I don't think like would work in the early seasons because you kind of need those two guys playing yeah. with each other. But now that we have like a, 
four seasons, this is like a fun, different dynamic of like, oh, this is a different type of person. Right, exactly. And I I love that BJ is kind of like, a he's such a wise ass, but not in the same way that <laughs> Hawkeye is in those like really subtle differences. Like they, they do complement each other a lot, of course, like, like Hawkeye and Trapper did, but there are those differences and... <laughs> The way that they write BJ's humor is definitely distinct from Hawkeye's. And I just, I don't know. I, it's just so fun. I love him so much. <laughs> He's not trying to be mean when he does these little comments, but he, uh, it's, <laughs> they feel it's a so fun genuine. part of snark. <laughs> it, it feels so much like genuine snark from him, too. Like, I do think that the writers do a really good job of, in all of the show, just like making the humor seem very genuine. Like, this mm-hmm. is actually how BJ talks, you know what I mean? Instead of, yeah. like, this is how the joke is supposed to land. And it is... I, I was watching an episode... Not Sorry, not to completely derail us, but, like, I was watching an episode recently, and it was just like, oh, my God, I fucking... <laughs> he, like, said something so offhand, and I was like, wow, I fucking love him. <laughs> I was like, we would get along. <laughs> See, that's, like, the best part of a good sitcom, too, is, like, oh, these would be my friends. Be, yeah. like, healthy... <laughs> Uh, parasocial things because they're fictional characters and you're not like grafting onto like a real person. Right, right, exactly. It's a delight. (laughs) (laughs) I do love it. Okay, to jump back into our main discussion, (laughs) this chaplain, his name is Hollister, he comes and visits conveniently right as everyone is popping out of the Jeep, including Father Mulcahy, looking very disheveled. (laughs) And I, I like that Hollister here was like, hey, Where's Father Mulcahy? He's supposed to put a kibosh on this kind of uh, activity. <laughs> and I'm like, really? It's not like a religious matter. And they're not doing anything like inappropriate. They're just piling into a Jeep. Like, I feel like feel like on the scale of things that are inappropriate to do on a military base religious wise, like getting into a Jeep with a bunch of other people probably pretty low (laughs) maybe but also i guess it's like a lot of people touching i don't know but they're not like touching sexually they're just touching (laughs) yeah it's not like they're piling into the jeep completely naked so i would say it's less sexual than a game of twister uh (laughs) (laughs) i think that this man was probably just looking for things to ride father mulcahy on Um, i would say so because, and then at, right after this, when poor Father Mulcahy is like, oh no, <laughs> the, my superiors are here to come look at the work that I'm doing and I've just got sat on by a bunch of people. Um, <laughs> the next scene is Father Mulcahy delivering a sermon and Colonel Hollister really did not like Father Mulcahy's sermon, which I thought was quite mean. I didn't yeah. like that. I did not get that vibe that this was not a good sermon. Um, if you're paying attention to uh, Larry Lindholt's performance, I don't know if this is like written that way, but it was kind of clear that like Frank didn't really know the words. Like, I feel like Larry <laughs> Lindholt played it like Frank didn't know the words, even though he's supposed to be a very religious man. And I like that. It adds another layer of like hypocrisy to Frank, even if subtly. Um, but otherwise, I, I did not get the vibe. This is a bad sermon. I feel like this guy was just being pedantic. He was. And I mean, he was definitely um, trying to get Father Mulcahy to do a more fire and brimstone type sermon. And that's just not who Father Mulcahy is. It's very obvious. It's just like not his style. Right. And this is another scene where I really loved the directing and the camera angles, too, because of the way that the camera was kind of angled up at Colonel Hollister while he was giving this really like he was yelling at Father Mulcahy, but also giving him an example of the type of sermon he quote unquote should be doing. Um, But also on your point about Frank, I thought it was so annoying that Frank and Margaret afterwards were kind of like low key calling Father Mulcahy bad at his job too, because they shook hands with Colonel Hollister. They're like, oh, it's so nice to have like a real spiritual leader here. Meanwhile, everybody else showed up to support Father Mulcahy and were really like laying it on thick. And of course, Frank and Margaret were like, actually, you're higher ranking than him. So you're automatically better in our minds. Any opportunity to brown nose, they will. Even if they are, like... (laughs) uh, Yeah, you're right. Uh, Frank and Margaret are, like, the worst people alive. They just continue (laughs) to demonstrate that. It's so silly. 
Um, they're so unnecessarily mean. And I feel like that probably contributed to why Colonel Hollister was like, you need to be more commanding in your relaying of sermons and whatnot. So I don't know. The whole the whole thing just rubbed me the wrong way, because like we said, we enjoy who Father Mulcahy is so much that the idea that he should change to be more of this commanding religious leader was upsetting. <laughs> yeah. It's like, come on, man. He's a, he's a good guy. I feel like they should recognize good guys when they do exist. Um, And Colonel Hollister's performance here was the moment that I clocked that this uh, guest star was probably a very big celebrity. And we'll yes. get into that during trivia. But this was a very big showy performance that I feel like you only give to like a top notch like actor actor, you know? Um, so yeah, like, absolutely. For the rest of this episode, I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> yeah, I really have to commend the performance of this actor who played Colonel Hollister as well, because in this scene, he was really commanding and he really sold it as this fire and brimstone type preacher. And then in the next scene, too, he was so ugh, he was so infuriating because <laughs> um, he was basically I described him as the religious version of just regular army. He was very, like, very bureaucratic in the way that he wanted things to be done and was telling Father Mulcahy to do things as well. Like, for example, when he was telling Father Mulcahy to write the letter to the soldiers, the wounded soldiers' Mm -hmm. parents, telling them that he was going to pull through. And Father Mulcahy said, well, that's not typically how I do it. I make sure that he's actually going to pull through first before... I write home to any family members. And Colonel Hollister was like, no, you can't do that. That's ridiculous. You have to just say that he's going to be better and then it'll make him better and that's it. And I feel like that was such a a comment about how this guy was just regular army. Like we've seen this so many times before with colonels and generals coming to the camp saying, this is how things are supposed to be done. This is what you should be doing without taking into account any reality of the situation at the 4077 and that might not be how you can do it in reality it might be how you're supposed to do it by the book but not really how you actually can do it so i thought that that was really interesting this was a very classic mash bad guy um normally there is a little bit more like ambiguity normally like these guys tend to have a little bit more of a point you know But this, I was just absolutely not on his side for. I was like, no, you cannot do that. You cannot send someone a letter home saying their loved one's getting better before they're actually better. Like, there's, I don't know if it's in real life, but I know they mention other, like, military war movies. So, like, the policy in good terms is, like, not to inform people until, like, things are set. And this, I was just, like, absolutely do not do that. I was not on this guy's side at all. No, definitely not. And this this also reminded me of a character in the book, too. I don't know if you remember, but there was a chaplain or or some kind of person who was insisting that they write letters home to wounded soldiers' families before they were actually stable. And then I think in the book, it ended up a person died and Trapper was really upset about it. Do you remember Mm -hmm. that? No, yeah. I think that's, like, what I'm thinking of, of, like, oh, this is why you don't do that. Right. Um, so, yeah, that it's so funny what they, like, pull from the book still. Yeah. Um, that there's still, like, material to be mined from the earlier uh, chapters. That's really cool. But this is just a classic MASH bureaucrat bad guy. Just absolutely not seeing the humanity of the situation, especially when he should see the kind of more complicated... Uh, humanity of it as they're like a religious man you know who has to like deal with people um yeah and it's so interesting too to me that the writers chose to do this because i i can imagine that this might have been a little bit controversial to kind of portray this yeah uh chaplain in not the best light um paired with last week's episode of uh somebody saying things about being jesus christ and also frank's religious hypocrisy and whatnot I think that it was interesting that they were kind of writing religion so hard. And it's a very consistent thing with the last couple episodes. Yeah. And I I, I think that that's really interesting because as the show kind of shifts, the, the, the show was never one to really shy away from stuff. Like as 
they they were including gay characters in the early 70s like that yeah. that was pretty monumental so i just think it's really interesting that they were kind of also critiquing religious aspect like a religion or uh like religious establishments or stuff like that well again i think it goes back to what i was saying earlier with Paul McKay just being a good guy. Like, mm-hmm. he's a good example of this establishment. I think that gives them a lot of leeway to uh, criticize and satirize in other areas when it comes to religion because you yeah, have this, this character who is just unambiguously great guy and a great example of, like, what you should be doing as, like, a follower of of this religion. You know, there's... There's no negative traits to him. He just gets along with everybody. Um, so I think when you have that, like a good core, you're allowed to be a little bit more exploratory because it's not saying that this entire establishment is bad. It's saying that no, like the no, individual yeah. is bad. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, like I said, I think that it's just interesting that they were willing to portray a religious person or not even a religious person but like a clergy member as not the best guy um so yeah so i i just thought that that was really interesting and i i feel like it also came about in the last scene too when the soldier who bj had saved previously started going under like he he's his pulse Mm -hmm. started dropping he had a fever stuff like that um and you could tell that Father Mulcahy was really upset about having written that letter and sent that letter because you know that he would have blamed himself as well. Um, yeah. And he I, says something along the lines of like it being a bad thing, like cosmically, like this is yeah. like his punishment for doing so. So like, I'm glad this guy pulled through because that I imagine would have been devastating to Father Mulcahy, especially because he, he never wanted to send it anyway. This wasn't a lesson that he needed to learn, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that what surprised me about the show, too, was that Father Mulcahy was, like, kind of, in a very subtle way, was almost grappling with religion a little bit. Um, a in, little bit. In the way that uh, the colonel was saying, you know, if you write it, you kind of speak it into existence that he will pull through before you know for sure. And it kind of featured Father Mulcahy almost questioning that a little bit of just yeah. like, okay, no, that's not necessarily the case. And like comparing it to like God's will versus medicine almost. So I thought that that was just a really subtle, really interesting thing that the writers put in there. And I appreciated that they did. Yeah, it's very nuanced. He's a very, like, religious man, but he's also more willing to, like, think about the implications of if it doesn't work out, mm-hmm. um, which, again, I think is great. Like, they, they do have just this great core character that they can explore other, like, facets of the, the kind of, like, faults in it without sort of saying that this entire system is bad. Um, it's, it's cool. Yeah, definitely. And I like I said, I I like how they talked about religion without being like hypercritical of it, too. Yeah. So I, I think or it was like just... preachy. It's a good yeah. balance. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just a really good job on the writer's part. So like we said, also, the soldier thankfully miraculously pulled through. And no thanks to Frank Burns, because Frank actually left shell fragments inside the poor boy. So thank you, Frank. Oh. I take back the credit I gave him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we can never credit Frank Burns too much because he will always do something that will end up biting us in the ass for (laughs) for speaking his praise. Yes, exactly. We also didn't mention that this soldier is from New Jersey. So (laughs) right, right. That's the classic. We always have to mention anybody from New Jersey at any point. There will always be a New Jersey connection. And what we didn't mention was Klinger's little side adventures, which I just want to bring up very quickly, was Klinger throughout this entire episode, he had a dream that he finally got out of the army for being crazy. And so he really wants to make his dream come true (laughs) and just finally puts it into high gear. He's back on the horse. He's trying to really come up with all these sorts of schemes and it's just great that they all kind of happen in the background and they get more and more elaborate 
Yeah, I really loved that. Um, I love that no letter home episode is complete without Klinger trying to get out of the army. I think that that has been consistent. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's just been consistent throughout the entire series of the show thus far. Um, Mm -hmm. And my favorite part about this was when he was captured trying to escape and he blew up an inflatable raft in Colonel Potter's office and it knocked Colonel Potter out of his chair. Oh, just the comedy gold. It was so funny. I I love a good raft joke. You'd be surprised at how many like sitcoms deploy raft (laughs) blowing up. Yes. Um, It was great. And I have to shout out Klinger in the very beginning of this episode. uh, Fulma Kehi's playing piano and Klinger's just on top of the piano and like a cocktail dress, like the the very stereotypical like <laughs> hot lady thing, and everyone's just like, "Yeah, this is cool." Um, <laughs> it was so funny because you have like other things happening in the background, like you had like Radar and Nurse Kelly dancing with each other, so they were not like noticing this at all. It was just like normal <laughs> thing for them. I really liked how he was just kind of like hanging off of Father Mulcahy's piano, like languishing in a very dramatic way. It was very <laughs> cute. <laughs> One other scene that I want to mention really quick was um, when Frank and Hawkeye were trying to teach local Korean people oh, yeah, yeah, English yeah. <laughs> because Colonel Potter kind of wanted to be able to give these uh, local Koreans jobs in the hospital. So <laughs> when um, Frank was teaching them like anti-communist rhetoric and then Hawkeye immediately jumps in and is like, Frank Burns eats worms. And I feel like that is just such a classic, classic line that, from these episodes. That is big sibling energy right there. Like the <laughs> second you can make fun of someone or tell someone else to like call someone else a mean name, you absolutely do it. Especially yes. like Frank Burns eats worms is just such a such a sibling thing. Like one time, my brother, when you came over my house for like the first time, he gathered all his like friends, and they were like ten years old, and they all just like chanted on the lawn of my house that I'm a dingus, and it was the funniest <laughs> thing that's ever happened to me. That I was yes. I do recall that. I do remember that. That they That is all, a core memory for me. <laughs> they all just called me a dingus. It was very like, well, this isn't even embarrassing. This is just funny. <laughs> <laughs> I really do feel like I have seen Frank Burns Eats Worms on a shirt before, and I would like to find it, and I would like to wear it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then at the very end of the episode, when he get when Hawkeye gets uh, all these Korean individuals to... Uh, say that Frank's a ferret face. Delightful. <laughs> Good one, ferret face. Amazing. <laughs> and uh, last thing that I do want to shout out while we're kind of going through miscellaneous things throughout the episode is that just in one scene in the background when they're kind of like walking through camp, there's a woman getting her hair shampooed. And that just oh, really yes. stuck out to me. It was very yes. strange. I, <laughs> I do remember like, that. Why? Why is this just in the background? And I, I couldn't help but think of the actress who, you know, through multiple takes of this uh this little walk and talk, was just had to get like relathered and had like a bunch of people touching her hair. I was like, oh that's that's hard work. Uh stand up for extras, am I right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. We love we love a mash background scene. Always something interesting going on there. <laughs> So, Ethan, I know that we talked about some funny lines in the episode, but do you have any favorite one-liners from this episode? Yeah, I mean, we said a lot of lines that I liked in this episode throughout this episode because there was not uh, this is not a line-heavy episode. But I will mention this one that takes a lot of context to like understand, but I just just think it's very funny on its own. Where Hawkeye, very sincerely, Alan Alda did a great job delivering this, just says. Nikki Hampton is vice president now? And he says it with so much sincerity. It stood out. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a good one. I really liked that one as well because you're right, Alan Aldo's deliverance of that no deliverance. Yeah, deliverance. Um Alan Aldo's delivery of that line was really funny. That was not him being snarky like he usually is. You're just like, wait, did that happen? <laughs> wait a minute. Um 
The only line that I noted down, even though there were several funny ones, but I just thought that this was quite bold for the writers (laughs) when they are piling everybody into a Jeep for breaking the world record. And Hawkeye is trying to like kind of goad Margaret into participating. And she says, this is completely beneath me. And Hawkeye says, I was hoping for that spot myself. And I just feel like that was like the sexual innuendos in this seat. Not seen. Oh, my God. The sexual innuendos in this. What is it called? Uh, A show? uh, No, not show. Season. (laughs) Season. I just feel the sexual innuendos in this season have been really, really, really toeing the line here. <laughs> they are they yeah. are ramping up. They're really getting to a place that I'm like, whoo, that is that is dicey <laughs> for yeah. 70s sitcoms. <laughs> or even uh, when when they're in the Jeep, Margaret says, oh, get my good side. And she's like getting into the Jeep. And uh, Hawkeye's like, oh, you know I will. And then he, like, smacks her butt a little bit. I was yes, like, that's yeah, bold. Yeah. <laughs> that's that bold, is so dude. bold. That's so bold. And I'm I'm just kind of really shocked at the <laughs> ramping up of the <laughs> sexual innuendos, which is so crazy because, in all honesty, the show is becoming, like, less sexual, especially in this part of the season. Um, Like, Definitely, you don't see Hawkeye going on as many dates with nurses, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. the fact that they're still putting it in there is is very funny to me. I mean, you, you got to get it out of your system somewhere. Yeah, you're right. You are right. So, Vanessa, this episode has a pretty famous guest star. I'm curious of what the trivia for him might be. Yes. Um. So I do have some trivia about Ned Beatty as Colonel Hollister, or as I like to refer to him, the mean priest. Yes, the mean priest. So Ned Beatty was born on July 6, 1937 in Louisville, Kentucky. Beatty started singing at a young age and received a scholarship to sing in the a cappella choir at Transylvania University in Lexington, in Lexington, Kentucky. Transylvania University sounds quite ominous and or a prequel to Hotel Transylvania. <laughs> but that's pretty cool. Very talented young man. Uh, yeah. Very early age. Yeah, definitely. Beatty began acting in 1956 at 19 and first began his career with state theater troops in Kentucky, Virginia, and Indiana. Beatty had a really extensive career, like we mentioned, um, but mostly played guest and supporting roles, which he actually said he preferred because leading roles were, quote, more trouble than they're worth. That's I thought that that was pretty interesting. That I can relate to. If I was an actor, I don't think I'd want the weight of the entire project on my shoulders. Yeah, I definitely agree. That would be uh, that would be pretty intimidating, I think. <laughs> Beatty made his film acting debut in 1972 with Deliverance, which, Ethan, you and I were obsessed with in high school. <laughs> yes, we were. I was, I've been trying to figure out like where I know Ned Beatty from specifically and probably Deliverance. He was also in the Christopher Reeve version of Superman in Superman 2, and I believe that Christopher Reeve is the only true Superman. Fight me. It's it's the only good Superman movie so far, so. (laughs) (laughs) He was also in All the President's Men and Network, for which he was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Wow, okay. Pretty accomplished. I haven't seen Network. Network is a classic. I gotta check that out. Yeah. Other movies Beatty appeared in are The Incredible Shrinking Woman, The Fourth Protocol, Prelude to a Kiss, He Got Game, Where the Red Fern Grows, Shooter, and Charlie Wilson's War, just to name a few. Man, those are all, like, famous movies. A lot of the guest stars we cover are like, oh, I've never heard of that. But those are like, yeah, I've seen uh, Where the Red Fern Grows, stuff like that. I'm like, ah, finally, things I've heard of. Yeah, he definitely was in a lot of very famous movies. And despite not liking starring roles, Beatty did get top billing in several movies throughout his career. He starred in the 2010 film The Killer Inside Me, and voiced the evil teddy bear in Toy Story 3, as well as voicing a character in the animated film Rango starring Johnny Depp. Yo, that's pretty (laughs) incredible. That's okay. That's actually probably where I know Ned Beatty from the best. (laughs) And it's so funny because uh, the character of that evil teddy bear in Toy Story 3, um, if you look at Ned Beatty at the time that he voiced it and the character of that teddy bear, they look very similar. It's it's very funny. Yeah. 
And like his movie career, Beatty's television career was also quite extensive. Besides MASH, he had guest appearances on The Rockford Files, Kojak, The Waltons, Gunsmoke, Hawaii Five-0, and Murder, She Wrote. Ah, the classic Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> he starred in the first three seasons of the TV show version of Homicide, Life on the Street, and also starred in the TV movie version of the show. Okay. He also starred in the TV movie Friendly Fire in 1979 and was nominated for Outstanding Lead Actor in a Limited Series. And Friendly Fire actually went on to win four Emmys itself. So I'm actually really curious about that one. Yeah, I uh, I haven't heard of that one, but I'm sure it's good, actually. He had a recurring role on the sitcom Roseanne, and he had a supporting role in the TV miniseries Last Train Home, for which he was nominated for an Emmy for Best Supporting Actor. In 2004, BD returned to acting on the stage for the Broadway run of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and won a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Featured Actor in a Play. Man, this is maybe the most accomplished guy we've uh, talked <laughs> about so far. And we've talked about, like, Ron Howard and stuff, so I'm... I'm curious of who else uh, appeared on the show where we're going to just get to sing their acolytes. Yeah, there there will be a lot more. So <laughs> buckle up. <laughs> and unfortunately, Beatty passed away from natural causes on June 13th, 2021 at the age of 83. Wow, that's so recent. Um, That's, you know, natural causes probably best way to go, though. Yeah, you can't go wrong with just passing away peacefully. Um, so I'm so glad that we got to learn about Beatty's career, and I'm so glad that I got to share it with everybody who's listening. So, Vanessa, that obviously means we have to rewatch Deliverance in his uh, tribute oh, sometime gosh. soon. Oh, gosh. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Ethan, what was your martini rating for this episode? This episode was good. I don't think it was, like, great. So I think we're going to go like a 3.5. Like, I, I like this one. It's solid. It's better than average. Um, But again, nothing like stood out to me as like, this is an excellent episode. This is just like a fun hangout episode. And I do like that we get a little bit more of Father Mulcahy's kind of characterization in this one, even though it's very clearly supposed to be a BJ episode, which is very strange. Yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat. Nothing was groundbreaking in this episode, even though I did like the commentary about Colonel Hollister. But I gave this episode a three out of five martinis. Ooh, we can never be the same. It, it's, it <laughs> continues to be true. I do think, though, that I, I see your 3.5 because as I talked about this episode, I realized that I did like it a little bit more than I thought, um, but I still think objectively I would stick with three. No disrespect there. So, just to wrap up, we'd like to give thanks to you, Jacob Friabalco, for being our technical consultant, Vanessa's sister, Melissa, for awesome cover art, and, of course, our listeners. Thank you so much for listening. Links to our music, social media, and contact the show are linked in the description, as always, and join us next week for Season 4, Episode 12 of Moose and Men. But until then... Don't forget to shave your hairy knuckles if you're trying to escape from the army. Goodbye, farewell, and amen. Bye, everyone. <laughs>